0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to ninety nine point nine four, the sound of cricket. Download our app for all our podcasts and commentary. Our shows include Red Inca and Double Century, which are hosted by me, plus shows on the West Indies, England, South Africa, Sri Lanka, and India. You can find them all via our social media at ninety nine point nine four DM, or by searching in your podcast or YouTube places for the name of your team and ninety nine point nine four, where we talk cricket. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. All right, let us answer some questions from our Patreons. Remember, if you want to ask your questions first, support us on Patreon. Support us on Patreon Uh allows you ad-free ad stuff, allows you questions like this, gives you access to our Discord server, all that sort of stuff. It's great. You should definitely do it. Uh, James says, how good is Robata as a T20 bowler? I mean, th- there's obviously no problem with talent. I think that he hasn't quite worked out what his best – he hasn't really worked out a line or a length or slow balls or what he needs to be consistently successful in, in T20 bowling. And at the death, he's just, you know, he he probably has worked it out. It's really that rest of that part of the game. Where does he fit in? Should he bowl more in the middle? How does he use the new ball better? Um, You know, and he's not the only one. I think we had a question like this similar recently, James, about uh, Pat Cummins. In fact, it might have been about both. They just haven't worked it out. And um, it's not an easy thing. I mean, Peter Siddle is one of the players that I look at. Where you look at the early part of his career and he just didn't really know where to bowl in T20 cricket. And other people work it out almost instantly, right? You know, uh, and, and so there is a huge difference between those sorts of players. The problem with someone like Rabada or Cummins is how much time you know, do they want to spend thinking about that and experimenting with it, right? They're basically only playing top-level T20 cricket, either internationals for their country uh, or IPL. So either the money's on the line or the national badge is on the line. If that's the case, it's a bit awkward to suddenly start experimenting with things and and trying different things. And I think Peter Siddle, I'm trying to remember if he did it with the strikers and maybe Essex or something like that. It's just it's easier to experiment in those kinds of areas, find what is best for you. Um, so you know, I'll never, I'll never pretend that uh Rabat is not going to be a good T20 bowler. Um but he's not as effective as he should be uh, as a bowler of his obvious talent. Uh, Will says, does this winter give us reason to think better of Justin Langer as a T20i coach? Well, <laughs> for those who don't know, he wasn't really in charge of the last World Cup um, when they won. Uh, it's funny looking back on it. He he kind of pushed the reins across um, uh, to Andrew McDonald at that point. I think just – I don't think anyone thought he was bad. In fact, I've always thought that Langer's – best skill was probably in the T20 realm. If you go back to Western Australia, they're pretty ordinary in everything except for um, T20 cricket. And I think Langer did some interesting things. I do think he was a bit old fashioned in the way that he, he thought about T20 cricket compared to someone like probably like Andrew McDonald. Um, so there is that, but yeah, no, I don't No, No, I don't think so. Um, I thought he was the wrong hire at the time. They're a very successful team. You have that many good bowlers in your side and, you know, peak Steve Smith. um, You're going to have some success in in Red Bull cricket. I, I think ultimately the players had moved on beyond him. They were all working for coaches who were seen as more intelligent, who were better to deal with, who were maybe more modern in the way they were thinking. I don't think that was particularly Justin Langer at that point, so I could certainly see why they uh, they decided to move on. And, and I think Cricket Australia moved on for different reasons, and the players for many different reasons. I was never a big fan of Justin Langer as a coach, um, before or after um, getting the Australian job. Nothing much has changed, in my opinion. Uh, Will says, would it be better to have ODI power plays at the end of the inning, ten overs that begin uh, and in the fortieth over? Uh, when the sixth or when the sixth batter comes in, so that the rhythm is different to T20 and there's more place for traditional test openers. Well, I mean, the power play exists where it does well so that we have excitement at the start, so there is something uh, there. I have said in T20 cricket, and you can make a similar argument for one-day cricket if you wanted to, I actually think it's the best way to do it is kind of to have, I don't know, two players out in the first phase. Three players out in the second play phase. Four players, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, till you get to the full players out at the end. When the players are going to attack anyway, because that then should allow for um, exciting cricket all the way through. And you know, it, oh, it, let's say you're consolidating, and I don't know, you've lost four wickets, and you're in the twentieth over or the you know seventh over, whatever it may be, and you're you're consolidating, but you've still got only three players out. Think to yourself there's a bit of risk and reward here and it, it could end up that what we what might happen which is similar to what happened when we changed the one day rules um playing conditions slightly which was you got a lot of higher scores and a lot of lower score games and i'm not sure that that is you know the weird thing is those sort of weird middling games maybe are slightly it means that the teams are slightly closer to each other and there's less extreme scoring in either direction but yeah i mean there are a million things you could do um uh, to change one day cricket to make it less like uh, T20 cricket i just don't think that's how they're thinking about those sorts of things anymore um but yeah there's absolutely tons i mean the bowling restrictions is is the most obvious one uh if you you know it, you change the bowling restrictions so no one bowls more than 12 or 13 or oh, it would be 13 overs wouldn't it uh which i think they did in domestic australian cricket uh late 90s early 2000s can't remember when it was um uh, that would make it very different than T Twenty cricket, um, but I think T Twenty cricket will just continue to develop in a way dif- separate to uh, one day cricket. Anyway, uh, like I think if we're gonna if we're ever gonna have a tournament uh, which is played on synthetic surface, T Twenty cricket will be the first one to get there, um, even if they start with hybrids and everything else. Uh, where are we? James says. At what age do you think representative level of cricket starts to become useful in player development and talent ID? Based on my memory of playing junior cricket and watching groups of juniors coming through, I don't really see the point in state, county, province teams for kids younger than 12, 14. Cricket mad kids lose interest. Kids that dominate due uh, to early physical development uh, find their peers, catch up, et cetera. Yeah, so it's a really interesting thing about junior cricket in general which is most players are going to, unless you're a physical outlier in, in one end of the spectrum, either you're incredibly tall or incredibly strong or incredibly short or incredibly weak. Chances are um, you are in age group cricket going to be dominated by, you know, the faster players, the stronger players, um, the, more de- the more mature players, you know, physically development, even emotionally development uh, players. So age group cricket to me, is a really good system as long as you then have another system for players who develop between the age of 18 and 26 27 There's something i was listening to on one of the basketball podcasts recently they were talking about how european basketball you know at 26 you can still become a professional whereas if you're if you finish playing college basketball at 22 in america or even high school basketball and you don't get picked up by any colleges and you can you continue to develop, but now you work. Maybe you're working in a factory or something else. You can't just join a club, right? And I do think in certain cricket environments, without the stronger sort of club elements, you are missing out on those sort of late blooming players. And there's good things and there's bad things uh, within that. But you know, to to have a player who at maybe at 20, was, you know, um, had a growth spurt and suddenly develops very quickly, if they're out of the system, because at 16, they, you know, were bowling at 85 miles an hour and you wanted, or 75 miles an hour, and you want everyone to be bowling at 80 and 85 miles an hour. But, at, you know, at 22, if they're six foot eight and they're still bowling and they've, and they've just, you know, developed physically and they're now at 80 to 85 miles an hour, but they're six foot eight, that might be something that you'd be worth looking at. And that's just a physical development that can happen later in some people. People develop physically so much different. I think now looking back on like a lot of my early success in sport, it's just because I was taller than everyone else. I had my growth spurt at 12, you know, and most of my friends had their growth spurt at 15, 16, 17, 18. Um, and so, for a long time, you know, in, in all the sports that I played where, you know, height was uh, important, I dominated in all those sports. Um, and then, whenever, and then everyone caught up and went flying past me. And so, I think, you know, I, I would have, uh, and I, saw, I had friends who did the same thing, who ended up playing, you know, representative sports um, uh, just because of, you know, physical strength and everything else. So, I, I do think from that perspective, it's a problem. But I don't think, you know, cricket mad kids are going to come and, If you're cricket mad, you're going to stay. It's those casual um, athletes that I think are are harder to to keep around. But I would say this, I think those sorts of athletes will come and go anyway, right? What you really want is a pathway for someone who is, um, I'm trying to think of a really good, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, someone like Venki Aya might be, you know, an interesting one to have a look at. I'm trying to think if there's any other country examples that I can think of at recent times where, you had a player who was out of the system, um, but there was still a system that they could play in, which meant that people could see what they were doing and they could move them across. And I'm, I think that maybe that's where we fail a little bit more with cricket. And I, have a look at the English system um, is one that is really interesting from that perspective. Um, perhaps the South African system is another one that's really interesting with that, from that. So if you're not in that system, and the ECB, I promise you, I think they have a real bias towards the players that they have picked at a very early age. And I've heard them talk about this before and I think they see it as a strength. But I think if you're not, I think the other bias should be, can we find a guy at 25 like Jake Lintop, right? Um, Who can go on to play for the country as well. And you really want that combination of those people because you don't want to miss out on two or three. And quite often the people who don't come through the academies, they have skills that other, that cricket teams don't necessarily have. And I don't just mean emotionally, although you know you look at someone like Dirk Nannis, he was a very important person in that Victorian cricket culture, partly because he didn't come up through it. It wasn't his culture. So he could go, that ah, that, that's bullshit. We shouldn't be doing that, you know. And just a simple thing like that is really important. But also different coaching methods because they might have come from other sports or how they've developed themselves. And quite often, if you come from outside the system, you have a freak natural outlier aspect to the way that you play. You might think about batting differently or bowling differently or fielding plans differently or whatever that may be. Um so I think any junior system I, I have no problem doing that because you do want to you want to develop players maybe not from 12 and 14 but certainly from you know 15 sixteen you want to start developing players um, that you think you want to start molding them towards the sort of players that you want further on however if there is no system uh that that continues to push everyone else you're just going to you know there, there's a point I think it was the ECB who said this. Um, They said, if you look at how many players we picked at around the age of 15 or 16, it might've even been earlier than that, that went on to play for England, it shows how good our system is. That's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is because you picked those players and you developed those players, you didn't actually see all the other players and how they could have developed. And you probably then had a bias towards the players you'd already picked over the players that you hadn't picked. And I think if you look at English cricket Benny Howell is maybe a very, very good advance, you know, a version of that where it's like, well, he doesn't fit in any of our boxes, so we don't know what to do with him. So we're just going to move Benny Howell to the side. It doesn't mean that he should have played for England or anything else. It's more that they didn't really trial him enough to see if he should have played for England. And and I do think that that happens with a lot of later developing players at times. Where I think they had it with Dawood Milan as well. Um, you know the I think there is um, a system sometimes that if you're not a star at 18 or 19, that you move on from them, forgetting that you may be a very average player at the age of 20, but at the age of 27, 28, you may have completely worked out what it means, and then you're in your prime years, and that international team can get three or four years out of you. I don't think cricket, as, as it's currently set up almost worldwide, thinks about it that way. They really think, how can we get the next 20, 21, 22-year-old in so they'll be in for the next 10 years, not noticing how many 21, 22-year-olds they've burnt through on the way, right? And, and sometimes ruined before that those players could have even gone on to develop further. So I think that answered your question, James. Um, Aditya says, do you think given the facilities and support system available today to international players from the top teams and specifically Indian players, uh, someone like Vinod Cambly uh, would have survived longer in the game and being able to fulfill some of the early, um, uh, you know, work that he did. Vinod Cambly is a really interesting one because of the cast system is really interesting, but also because he's that first flashy Indian player, right? You know, he, in some ways he's like a less successful Alan Iverson and you look at his numbers domestically after he's dropped and you hear people go, oh, he wasn't good enough and everything. You look at his international numbers overall, but you look at those domestic numbers and you go, there was certainly something there. I think he was the wrong person at the wrong time. I don't think now he could be pushed aside so easily with Indian social media, with Indian media the way it is. Um, I think there would be a lot of people now upset. So I think you have to factor that side in. Um, what else do you have to factor in with him? He really was. You know, I talked to Sri Santh about this because Sri Santh was another rock star-y type cricketer. Um, You know, Sri Sri Santh was the sort of person trying to drag all his teammates to the trendiest nightclubs and buy everyone drinks and hang out with celebrities and all that sort of stuff, which is, if you think about the era he played with, you know, Laxman, Dravid, Tendulkar, you know, (laughs) Sehwag—they're not really those kinds of people. Um, And he kind of said to me that he felt like, even before the, the the match fixing thing came up, he kind of felt like they were looking for a reason to move on for him because he because he wasn't that sort of person. I think Indian cricket has changed a lot, so Vinod Campbell specifically would not stick out in the same way now. You know, there's plenty of players with tattoos and attitude and chains and everything in Indian cricket now. So I think from that perspective, um, but I also think from a franchise perspective, think about it if you're. Vinod Campbell now, and you, Alex Hales is a really good example of this. England didn't want Alex Hales, right? They moved on from Alex Hales. They were <laughs> they weren't going back to any Alex Hales like business. Alex Hales just went around the world playing franchise cricket, embarrassing them. That's a lot different than in Vinod Campbell's time when he was literally he's like a line item in a newspaper, right? Other than local press, no one's really looking at anything other than the fact that he scored a lot of runs again. And that's a huge difference than turning on your TV and seeing Alex Hales being the top player and having all the T20 nerds talk about him and, you know, CrickViz doing a special on him. On, you know, CrickViz following, CrickInfo uh, CrickBuzz Crick following what he's done in some random tournament. It's just a, a very different world from that perspective. I still think that, though, and it goes back to James's question, I still think that cricket is not particularly well set up to handle outlier personalities. Um, it's, it's such a weird sport because it is such a, it is such a individual sport within a team environment. And, and I don't think, and I think when, I think most modern coaching sort of stems off the Australians because they sort of set up what modern cricket coaching was. And I think in Australia, cricket's much more like football in that it is much more a team endeavor. And, you know, if you spend time in English cricket culture and Asian cricket culture and Australian cricket culture, you see one of the big differences is that, you know, the way that Australians sort of bond together as a team. And that, I think that just comes from going hand in hand with probably Aussie rules football, but maybe rugby league, the way that they all grew together. I I don't know why it's a little bit different, but that affects the coaching because it does mean that individuals um, are not always as well accepted uh, into those sorts of environments. Uh, you know, the, the, you're supposed to, you know, all for one, one for all, uh, maybe doesn't quite fit. So I still think cricket has a problem with that. So I still think someone like Vinod Campbell would have a problem with that. But if he's around today, he'd be an IPL star, right? And you just, I don't know how India would be able to ignore him uh, as much. Uh, and you would probably get maybe a situation like now where, you know, Privy Shaw, a completely different kind of person, but, I've, you know, there are problems with Prisvis Shaw that Indian the Indians don't want him around. You know, but if he, he averages 40 with a strike rate at 160 one year, it's going to be hard to ignore him in the way that you could ignore players like that in first-class cricket before. You know, if you look at that, um, you know, um, forward alarm type situation, if you look at the Dean Jones type situation, uh, you know, there's been a lot of incredibly talented players who in earlier eras, yeah, they're really talented, but they're dominating in first-class cricket. No one's watching it. and It doesn't matter, Right. I think that is a lot I have a harder thing to do now just because of the way that cricket is covered and talked about and social media and uh, the many opportunities you have to play in front of a camera which is not just for your country anymore. Will says do you think it's too early for uh, Rahan Ahmed to be brought into the England test squad or is he um or is he as good as the other leg spin options already? I think it's well I think it's the all-round ability with him as well isn't it. So it's a, I don't know if he's better than the other leg spinners um So I've done a little bit of look uh, at at his footage today um, from a technical uh, standpoint. Also, I I sent it to another friend of mine who's an expert in spinners. We both worried about his front arm from a technical um, side of things. Uh, In test cricket, I think, to be a consistent leg spinner, you really do need a strong front arm and just kind of putting his front arm out there. So I worry about that. He's a wrong bowler, and sometimes some wrong and bowlers do that because they want to drop their left arm a little bit more. Um, and he does seem very wrong independent. Again, not sure how many wrong independent uh test match leg spinners we've seen. It's really early on for him. Uh I worry about the hype um aspect. Uh, you know, there's been a couple of young players that England have thrown in recently and just really overhyped. And you look at them and go, they're flawed players with a long way to go. Um, if he wasn't if he wasn't a flawed player um at his age, he would have already played more games. And I'm not saying that that means he's not going to have a huge development curve of recent times and suddenly be a frontline player in county cricket. He's obviously talented enough for that. But the problem is he hasn't played enough of that. He doesn't have the experience. It could be a situation where you get a good few games out of him and then after a while, maybe five or six test matches, maybe maybe even longer than that, um, you might get a year. People start to work out how to play him and everything starts to calm down. That's the real tricky period. And that's the period that he's incredibly confident. And he's never had a setback really in his career so far. And he's going to play test cricket probably, or at least possibly well before um, he's even developed as a first class player. And now he's going to have cameras on him. Now he's going to have a million people with opinions on him and everything else. It's really tough for someone that young to be able to do that. If England are right um, and he's an absolute freak, then that may not matter. If he's not and he's just a young kid with bravado and suddenly he has, I don't know, athers or, um, what's a Macram saying, Oh, you can see the technical fault faults here, or, you know, maybe he's just not good enough or whatever that may be. Um, is he, is he the right person to be able to pull back from that? We've seen Matt Renshaw, uh, really with that we've seen, uh, you know Zach Crawley fighting his own technical problems. It's really tough on young players if you don't know your game inside and out, and there's no way he can. If they're just saying to him, "Look, we're going to play you in this tour because we think it might suit your batting and bowling," we we still need to see you go back and turn out runs in first-class cricket, and we want to see you play for the Lions and everything else. And he knows that going in. That's maybe a better situation to go in. So he, you know, say you're not being if if you play in this tour. Uh, you know, one test, let's say, and you do okay in it and you don't play for another six to 12 months. We don't want you to think you're dropped and we're not interested. What we want is for you to develop in all those other ways. That's the adult way of dealing with this. Generally what happens with a young player is, you know, they come in um, and they either fail straight away and they disappear or they have success and they get massively overhyped and then it becomes hard to drop them um, and then you have to drop them and then they go off and they disappear into the system um, and uh, it causes problems for you further down the line. So it's, again, a lot of these things are just development issues, right? Ray says, can anyone stop the Adelaide strikers this year? So it's really interesting. I was looking at these numbers, uh, Ray, of them. Uh, I think it just went through to the final. I think that's right. I saw the game, but I saw, I saw the scorecard, but I've forgotten. I think it was the final, wasn't it? Um, they're really interesting, the strikers, because I think their three top batters are all striking around a runner ball. And, you know, there's a lot of players striking far quicker than they are. Uh, pardon the pun. A lot, of, <laughs> a lot of batters striking far quicker than they are um, uh, at the moment. And so I think from that perspective, it's a really bowling-dependent team. When you look at their bowling, I think Megan Schutt has 26 wickets and Amanda Wellington has 22 or 23. They're both averaging – one's averaging 12 and one's averaging 15. That is – like I can't remember the last time I saw two bowlers in any T Twenty franchise league uh, with those kinds of. It's the amount of wickets and the average, which is is a bit unique in that in that situation. So you quite often get bowlers who you know with good averages, but maybe they haven't bowled that much, or they you know they play a little section of of a season, and so you get a you know a wild swing. though some they played at twenty. What is it, 48 wickets, 49 wickets between the two of them? That's a lot of wickets um, at a really low average over you know a good chunk of the season now. Um, that's a phenomenal record, and it, m- it must mean uh, – I think they must both be averaging two wickets a game. I'm trying to do this off the top of my head, trying to remember how many games they've played, which means that going in against them, you know that their two main bowlers are going to take four wickets. You add in one run out – uh women's cricket doesn't quite have as many runouts as it used to have but you add in one run out you're now at five wickets that means the other three bowlers only need to chip in uh, around one wicket each and you're already well into your tail and associate uh, associate cricket uh, women's cricket is very similar to a lot of franchise cricket the depth of that sort of six seven eight nine um thing is quite often where it gets a bit tricky um just uh just the way that franchise cricket kind of works and you know, you don't have, you know, you don't have as many of the sort of longer batting lineups you sometimes see in international cricket. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you know you're going in and you're probably getting five wickets out of, you know, a run out and your two main bowlers, you know that you're going to be testing the, the, the depth of every team. The only way to play against the strikers really is to go all in with an abnormally long batting lineup you're batting down to nine or 10 if you have that many batters available to you and just try and throw it up against them and just go okay we're gonna take your wickets fine we're gonna go all out attack with the bat um and knowing that the strikers uh with the bat maybe can't score as many runs i don't know why i'm helping anyone else i don't know. they lost to the scorchers um uh i'm trying to think if i know any of the women's coaches at the moment um, in the women's big bash, um, but um, yeah, that would be the way I'd look at. It, but it's a really interesting um, uh, uh, franchise team at the moment. Ian says, "Why does it appear that David Warner is now so keen to have his leadership ban overturned? Is he? What does it appear? David, is, uh, is he really an option for a at this stage or is it just a Sydney Thunder thing?" I think. I think for Warner, and I haven't talked to him. Uh, I think he's always been keen on having the ban. I th- I think they all knew that the bands were ridiculous and over the top. And he he's never spoken out about it. Really. He said a little bit. Um, but I think if you talk to him privately, I think you'd probably get a uh, a different view on and how he feels on all this. And I think he felt feels like he played the good um employee, um, still got shafted, and then they looked after the other guys and maybe not him as much. And Partly, it's just because of his reputation. I think, as as much as anything else, and uh, he was the easiest scapegoat. And I think he is aware of that. And so, it did. I think it has upset him. I don't think he's. I don't think it's so much that David Warner is now keen to have his leadership ban overturned. I just think there's a movement within cricket, and he'd be silly if he wasn't part of it. They kind of, you know, he really should have been the one day captain uh, if there was no ban. It, you know, it would have made most sense going into the next World Cup. He was definitely going to play in it. Um, and, uh, you know, Pat Cummins doesn't play enough. <laughs> Ridiculous, uh, you know, uh, suggestion to think he was ever going to be able to do it. with He's Made captain and was rested for his second or third game, was it? Um, so I do think that is part of it. I don't think the Sydney Thunder thing is a big part because I don't think he'll ever probably play a lot of cricket for Sydney Thunder unless he sort of has a retirement gig at the end. Um, when when his uh, shoulder is or knees or whatever it is that slow him down eventually um, get to him, but um, I just think that they you know the the thought process within Australian cricket of the people I've talked to, to is we don't really have a captain and we have a guy here who can actually captain and it's a, it's a hangover from a stupid decision made by. Authorities who were trying to cover their own ass despite the fact that many executives at Cricket Australia knew that things were going too far um, and that there was issues there. Um, and as I've said, uh, you know, ball tampering is not a one-person job. The entire team knew it was going on. To uh, suspend three players <laughs> is an absolute. It was a joke at the time, and um, it's been a joke ever since. And then to give one player this incredible um, extra punishment, I, I just think that. At the time, they were getting bad PR and they've been trying to wh- find a way to dig themselves out of it ever since. And I think David Warner is just trying to put a bit of pressure on them. I I'm, I, I, th- I think he would love to captain Australia, but I don't think it's just about that. I just think it's also about he does feel like he was unfairly treated. He was unfairly treated. The <laughs> whole thing was. Kennedy says, do you think living in Melbourne instead of India has affected Shikha Darwan's career? Yes, he's much more attractive, uh, so much more intelligent, um, like we all are um, from being from Melbourne. Um, no, because, I mean, I think if you look at the way he plays, I I don't see a huge, you know, sometimes you see a player, I'm trying to think of someone specifically, but you do see a player who is, like might be, a, um, I'm trying to think, someone like Otis Gibson. Uh, yeah, West Indian bowler, obviously spent so much of his time in England and he sort of combined the two regions into his bowling uh, eventually. Um, Imran Tahir, perhaps someone who had to learn how to bowl on non-Asian pitches, which is coming to a, you know, he basically built the last seven years of his career uh, on his ability to bowl uh, on pitches that weren't, um, you know, as uh, in his favour as the ones he probably uh, would have bowled on uh, earlier on in his career. Uh, so you do see players do that um, from that perspective I can't see anything off the top of my head in Shikadawan's game, right, where I could say to myself, this is a direct uh, response to him playing in Australia. I'd have to have a closer look. Um, as far as as far as far within the team, I mean, he still gets picked. It's, it's an interesting dynamic. Um, there are so many players who live in the UAE that – and it's not that publicly known – um, and so, and there's a couple of, you know, international players who live in England really as well. Um, and, and again, it's not a, a, as well known. So Shikha Darwan's one is probably a little bit more famous than everything else, but as far as his career, I don't see anything. Um, but it's, I think it's a really good question. Um, and you know, I'll probably start looking now to see if I could see anything different, but I don't see anything that's affected him directly. Um, it probably makes him, probably helps him. I think. This is something I was told by other people, and I don't know Shikha Dhawan at all, but that he can get—he's one of those athletes who struggles a little bit more with his—not emotions is the wrong thing, but you know, most of the best players are very, very even-keeled, right? Most of the time, you know, through wins, through losses. I have heard that Shikha Dhawan can be someone who you know gets up and gets down a little bit more. Um, living outside of India um, and outside of the you know the the, the fishbowl, maybe. Helps him regulate that a little bit more. But that's like a lot of pop psychology and, you know, remembering conversations in bars with other players and stuff um, eh, rather than anything factual. (laughs) Christopher says, as we start to get more associate countries involved in cricket, uh, do you think first-class test cricket is ever a long-term plan for them? From my point of view, it would be my dream to see 20 countries plus long-term cricket, but I wonder if that's realistic. Look, I think if you're – I remember when I first started with Scotland, they were really clear – Saying that T20 was their plan, and I think there was there was certainly a feeling from Scotland that Ireland, not not Ireland, had got it wrong, but Ireland obviously were desperate to get Test status, and you know Scotland would bite that your hand off it for it as well. But I think Scotland were looking at that and going, yeah, but then actually you end up getting judged on all your white ball cricket, and you might not play any Tests anyway. And to be fair, Ireland haven't, um, but. Uh, you know, it made their uh, future a little bit more financially stable and certainly helped them within, you know, organizations within the country. So it does go both ways. But I, I I'd be very surprised now unless you had a international team who some associate team who just has I oh don't know, let's say in Namibia, um, and you suddenly look at it and go, Oh, you know, they're not they're T twenty cricket, they can't get anyone who could score at a strike rate of over 110. So they're never going to be a top level T twenty Team. Um, but um, they have all these bowlers, you know, all these left-arm seamers who can hit the top of off stump uh, with a little bit of all-round skill, you know, and maybe they can be a very good nagging, you know, Test team. Would it be? Would it, in that situation, might a team I don't know follow that? It's possible, right? But I don't think any team's going to make it their plan just because of the way that cricket is going, the way that you get financing, the way that you get crowds, all these different things, uh, you know, and and even if you, let's say you are Namibia, but if you have two or three good T20 players, they're still gonna get yanked away to play in franchises anyway, right? So I don't see how that works um, as a model. If we keep Test Cricket around though, and we continue to get more and more teams who are good at it, I, I don't see that as a problem going forward. And I do think if we can work out a way to make money off test cricket and which there are obvious ways to make money off test cricket that we're not currently doing, um, if that's the case, uh, then there'll be an economy there. So that will also work for associate teams and will work, you know, if if we ever end up with some form of franchise test cricket or something else. So I think it's less likely for that to happen just because people involved are not able to do it for many different reasons, sometimes just don't understand. Uh, it's um, an easy thing to see is T20 cricket. So I think more likely we'll have more good teams, but they'll be white ball teams. All right. Uh, Let us go to the room. See who we have. Ashish, you there? Uh, yeah. Hello, Jared. Hey, mate. What's your question? Yeah.
0: Uh, did, you care, uh, did you happen to watch the documentary by the DNBR through the Serbia documentary?
1: No it came out on YouTube, I think, last night. Um so I haven't seen it yet. Is it good?
0: Yeah, it's quite it's quite good. Like uh, I, I like the way they how they dispersed the geopolitical aspect of it with into a travelogue, into a you know, a pilgrimage sort of thing. It just it's quite good, you should catch it.
1: Yeah, I mean I um so I grew up in, in Melbourne and there were so many uh Croatian and Serbian people, so you know, a lot of my friends when I was growing up uh, were, were like that. In fact, my, here's my favorite story about Serbian culture from my life, which was that I dated a Croatian girl and she said that her mum hated me so much that her mum had said that she preferred that she dated a Serbian. Um, and this was not long after. <laughs> this is not long after the wars and the conflicts and everything else. That I was like, I just don't think this relationship is, uh, is going to last long term. Uh, but anyway, mate, what's, what's your question? Yeah, so
0: this is one thing. Uh, okay, if you had like the ideal, uh, like if you had like an unlimited budget in a franchise tournament, how like how many like so i was just thinking of it in terms of like how many ceiling raising players would you have, how many floor raising players would you have, and how many like you know average players you would have in a in a starting eleven, for example. That's what
1: yeah. I think I think the, what you really want is you want ceiling raising batters and floor raising bowlers. Because that's kind of offense versus defense. So um, you probably, I think every bowling lineup you want two strike options. You, you want Amanda Wellington and and Megan, Megan Shoot, if we're being honest. Um, but you want you want you want that kind of ability to be able to take uh, wickets at that level. Um, so you probably want two of those, and then your other three bowlers you probably want as your eco bowl- bowlers, right? No, not that they won't take wickets and. At different times, but you know, Sunil Narine, you know, who's it? The has said they got rid of Rashid Khan because he doesn't take wickets, and it's like, well, he doesn't take wickets because no one will play shots off him. Um, <laughs> so you still want yeah, that like bowler? Yeah, like Rashid and Narine are like the perfect racing bowlers, I would say, right? Because they're yeah. they're very economical. Uh, no, exactly. I mean, you look at Um Hasaranga and uh, Tikshana, right? Like Sri Lanka is not and a, a great team, but you all those two guys for six or seven overs combined and if you attack them you're probably going to lose wickets and um, and you probably against Tichana you're probably going to have to chip him around a little bit and with Hassaranga, to score quickly off him you can but you have to take big risks right um, it Hasarunga at the moment is probably a ceiling raising bowler, right? And Tikhon is probably a floor raising bowler, but probably going ahead, eventually everyone's going to have to unless Hasarunga's bowling gets worse, right? People are going to eventually just aren't going to have to stop trying to get out to him. <laughs> you know, uh, and we've seen that before, you know, Boovie was once a, a a ceiling raising player and now he's a floor raising player, which is probably why he doesn't fit into the Indians setup as much anymore, right? So, um you know, it, you know that happens with with bowlers. You can get you get so good in T20 cricket that you don't get as many wickets anymore, which is such a weird way of thinking about it. But that is essentially what happens. Um, you know, I, I didn't look last year, but I don't think Rashid Khan, again, was one of the leading bowlers. Uh, but his team did pretty well, right? So um, if, you, if you think about it from this perspective, of, say you're the bowler who's bowling at the other end to Rashid Khan and his over's just gone for six runs, they're going to take more risks off you. Right, so you have that ability. So that's when you compare him up with someone like that. So I think from that perspective, that's what I would like. And then with batting, you know, and I'm I'm sort of leaving out all round talent here a little bit. But with batting, I I, I want to have in my top seven. I probably want to have four players um, who have the ability to completely transform a game in one way or another. And then I probably want uh, two players with a basic sort of all round ability to give me a flexibility uh, there. And then I want one top level batting talent. Um, I prefer them not to play like an anchor, I prefer them to play like AB de Villiers. Um, but if they play, if they play like an anchor and I can use them as a rotation piece throughout, you know, so one day I'm going to get them to open. Cause I don't know, um, and Berendorf is just tearing through the competition and we we need an opener to make sure that no one goes out to Berendorf. Fine. Next game it's Rashid Khan. So, you know, I'm going to have them there. Um, those sorts of things are the way that I would be looking at, at doing that in that sort of Fantastical, perfect world um, situation. Because if you look at that, then you you should have you know your seven, uh, your six or seven players um, who can win you a game, and then your five or six players who keep you in um, uh, a lot of games.
0: Yep. Uh, yeah. Can I have? Can I ask one more question? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So what is easier to upskill a batsman to uh,
1: to make him bowl or a bowler to make him bat? I would have always said that it's easier to upskill a batter to make him a bowler. I think traditionally, um, if you look at the history of cricket. So here's a really interesting – actually, no, I still think I fundamentally agree with that. If you look at the history of cricket, so you would have heard so much more about how tail enders are so much better now. The actual average of tail enders in test cricket hasn't improved, right? So all that Steve Waugh stuff of, you know, training tail enders and – uh, all this thing now about everyone needs to bat and how you only pick a spinner if they've got secondary skill with a bat, it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work goes back to what we talk about a lot on the, on this show, which is to be able to bat and face people bowling at over 80 miles an hour is a specialist skill that only a few people on the planet have managed to work out. And you can't learn that as a tailender. You can develop your batting over the length of your career. And once you get, if you, if you know that you have Jasper Bormer or Glenn McGrath and they're going to be around for 10 years, right, I do think you, there are things you can do to make them slightly better, right? But I don't think you can ever take someone who doesn't have that innate ability to circade and understand where the ball is going to go and get in the right positions. Um, and um, if they don't have those skills, you know, it, you're polishing a turd and, you know, maybe the turd is shiny at the end, but it's still a turd. Right, um, you know, if, if you're a genuine number, if you're a genuine number eleven, what's your best case scenario? Is that you're a plucky number nine, right? Not saying that you should be trying to do that, right? You still should, should be trying to do that. I do think that if you look at Michael Bevan, Michael Yardi, Ravi Shastri, Mark Richardson, that there is something that to be said for finding a batter with spin talent and especially if there is something else that pushes it. So if you're Michael Clark or Sachin Tendulkar, um chances are you don't have the time to fix your bowling properly, right? But if you're Michael Bevan and you're in and, out and you're not playing test cricket and you know, you might have a chance to fix your bowling a little bit. If you're um if you're Ravi Shastri and you're Mark Richardson and your batting actually fails, um well, sorry, Mark Richardson went the other way around, but you know what I mean. Um, you know, if if Mark Richardson had, had, had if Mark Richardson's batting had not flourished, right, and instead of coming back and averaging 45 with the bat, he averages 35 with the bat, he probably has to work out a way to make his bowling work again. If you look at George Dockrell, that's exactly what's happened there. And if you look at Shastri's case, he's probably like, well, the only way I'm going to get picked here is if my bowling is off a certain level. And it's really interesting to me how often you get a player who is quite often picked on all-round talent but when they get really good at that specialist batting talent, the bowling drops off, right? That tells me that they no longer need to work on their bowling anymore. And that's a part of it. Some of it is physical as well. So Mike Atherton told me that he couldn't bowl anymore because uh, he batted so much that his back got sore, right? Uh, Michael Clark had the same thing. Yeah, so both of them had chronic back injuries, right? Dave Warner told me that – I asked Dave Warner why he stopped bowling and he said it was just, just hurting his shoulder. Um, and, you know, in T20 cricket he needed to, his shoulders to be powerful. So there are lots of little things like that that happen. But I do think that there's, there's, there's a huge reason why we have less part-timers than ever before. And, it's, and I think it's threefold. I think it's um, having more net bowlers and having throwdown uh, uh, people – right? Which is kind of one whole thing. The other one is that these players do travel so much. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the last one. I'll get to that one. But the other one is that these players travel so much and they're in planes and cars and buses and everything more often than that predecessors were. Um, I think that's a problem. And then the last one is that hyper-specialization um, type of thing. You know, more often than not, if you look at the best, if, if, you, if I was to give you the list right now, if, give me your top five all-rounders in the world. Right, just off the top of your head, just bang me out five all around us. Uh,
0: Hardik Pandya, Andre uh, yep. Russell, yep. yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's hard a sand probably, family,
1: but were any Ben Stokes, yes. yeah, Ben Stokes. Uh, Asia Shadab, Shadab Khan. Let's just put those five out there, right? You could throw Jason Holder in there as well, right? But um, Rashid Khan you know, also probably. Rashid Khan's probably slightly different, but yeah, if you look at the uh, the majority of those players we've mentioned, they are freak athletes right? Especially for cricket, like, you know, Ben Stokes, uh, Ben Stokes doesn't look like and move like other England cricketers. Shadab Khan doesn't move like other Pakistani cricketers. Ravi Dodeja De doesn't move like other Indian cricketers, right? So to be an actual all-rounder, you probably need to be a different kind of physical specimen to begin with, right? And I think if you go back in the history of, if you go back to Keith Miller, one of the greatest physical athletes we've ever had in cricket, Imran Khan, right? You know, um, Kapil Dev, These are not the normal cricket athletes that we see coming through. So I think to be a true all-rounder, you have to be a different kind of physical specimen. And if you look at some of the all-rounders, the sort of batters who bowl a little bit, they probably don't. The reason that they're not bowlers is because they don't have bowling bodies, right? They don't have that physical athleticism to be able to go. So I do think there is a toll that goes on it. But I think if you look at, here's two really good examples for you. If you go through the history of ODI cricket, There are two batters who bowled more than five overs a game who no one would ever think about as all-rounders, but probably qualify as all-rounders. And those two players are Viv Richards and Darren Lehman, right? Now, both of them are shit. They're both shit bowlers. (laughs) Like, I, I don't want to slag them off, very skillful at other things they do. And to be able to be that successful in ODI cricket without any innate bowling talent, I think is incredible. But why why did they become really, really good bowlers? And it's because they're smart enough to know where to put the ball, where it makes it just a little bit difficult for the other player, right? Just that little bit difficult. Look at Darren Lehman dropping his arm, right? He did that before, but way before we talked about it in T20 cricket. Darren Lehman could bowl with a high arm action, a normal arm action, and a low arm action, right? And he was trying to skid that old ball through and all these sorts of skills that he'd learned from watching spinners bowl to him right? Biv Richards used to bowl quite quick, a little bit like we see with Joe Root. They're not spinners. They don't think like spinners, but they think like batters. And I think that is handy. I'm not sure that that helps a bowler when he's batting. And what I mean by that is um, a bowler might be able to go, well, he's bowled this ball, so he's going to bowl that ball. That's great. But if he's bowling at 85 miles an hour and you can't cicade your eyes, even knowing that he's going to bowl the full and straight one doesn't matter. Shane Warne's a perfect example of this. Everyone always talked about Shane Warne being a potential all-rounder, and it never quite happened, did it? He was always on the verges of it, but he never quite made it happen. And if you look at him early in his innings, he couldn't pick up the ball. If you could bowl straight and full early on to Shane Warne, you are a huge chance of getting him out early. He just couldn't pick the ball up properly right? It wasn't that he wasn't smart enough. It wasn't that he didn't find a method. Cause I think in those two ways, he was a very clever player. It was that on a very, very scientific level, just wasn't picking the ball up uh, well enough, especially early on. Right. And because of that, it meant he was really susceptible to full and straight balls at his pads. And he was never, that was never going to be able to overcome it. And I remember talking to Darren Goff about his batting. And he kind of felt the same thing. He thought that he had some skills that should have made him a better batter, but he could never quite bring them together. And when I sort of came up with this theory, he went, do you know what? That's probably what it was like, you know, uh, if I was in for a while, I felt like I could see the ball a little bit better. But when I first got in, it felt like everything was just a bit sped up for me until we can get to a point where we can train players to do that. I think it's always going to be easier to train a batter to have a handy bowling skill than vice versa. Having said that, everything you've talked about, hyper-specialization and the fact that bowlers, batters just don't bowl in the nets anymore means that at the moment we're not doing that. Uh, but watch this space because I'm doing something on that topic. Uh, for I'm doing a big review of Indian T20 cricket, and one of the things I'm talking about is that. Um, so thank you for that. Well, those questions. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Thanks for that, mate. Uh, Who have we got here? Oh, James. James never comes through, but let's see if he does. James, you there, mate? To your flutter of life. James, you've got mute on. If you take mute off, give it a go. Uh, he has written a question down there. James says, are players like Nathan Lyon and Marcus Harron inherently better players in general than a white ball superstar batter with short-lived or bad first-class test careers? Okay. They have better fundamentals. Doesn't necessarily mean <laughs> – I'd find it very hard to believe – that Kyron Pollard is not a better player than Marcus Harris, right? Manus Labishain is a bit different because he's one of the best players in the world at his particular thing. But I find it very, very hard to believe that Kyron Pollard, uh, I'm trying to think of someone else, you know, those sorts of players are not better than Marcus Harris. And I think that had Kyron Pollard gone on to play a lot of um, Test cricket and first class cricket, you look at his numbers, he would have been a really decent player um I'm not not sure his bowling would have translated brilliantly but having having a guy who can bowl high 70s at six foot seven or whatever he is and a strong six foot seven um would have been quite a handy second skill to have and he probably you know he I mean his first class average was still better than most of the top order batters that were picked for the west Indies um and he only played a little bit of it I think if you're looking at if you're looking at a player who is Marcus Harris level in white ball cricket um, and then you're looking at Marcus Harris, then you're probably saying that Marcus Harris has probably has some extra skills uh, um, available to him. But it, it, it does mean that we're sort of slightly downplaying some of the white ball skills that are necessary. So we are looking then more at a technician style of things. And so, you know, is, is Andre I was gonna say Andre Russell? He's a bad example. Is Tim David right? Is Tim David someone who could have done what Marcus Harris has done if he'd you know, got the breaks and played more first-class cricket and everything else? I don't know. Aaron Finch, right? That you know they tried it. I I still lean towards the fact that red Bull cricket tests you out in more different ways. Pardon the pun than white ball cricket does, and so you probably do need a slightly higher skill level, but there, is, there are other parts to white ball cricket. I, I'm going to sp- spin this away way, way because batters and bowlers are so different. I think if you're a red ball cricketer who can average 40 in the red ball, you've probably got a higher skill level than a lot of the white ball guys who can't average 35, right? Bowling, though. I think some of the most skillful bowlers that we've seen coming through of recent times have been those white ball bowlers. Whereas in red ball cricket, at the moment in red ball cricket, I shit you not, you only need to learn the wobble ball, right? And how many great bowlers have, have there been, or not great bowlers, but very, very good bowlers in test match cricket who basically had an outswinger, right? Or just a very good off break, you know, whatever that may be. So in some ways in batting, I think, there's maybe slightly more skill in, in that situation. Whereas in bowling, I think there might not be. And there might be slightly more skill in some of the white ball bowlers. Not all white ball bowlers. There's some gloriously one-dimensional white ball bowlers out there as well. But I do think you probably have to, it'd be very hard at the moment to have one delivery in T20 cricket and be a success. You can have one delivery in test cricket and be a success if that one ball is, you know, a, a very good stock ball from that uh, perspective. Uh, We had a couple more speakers, but they just dropped out. Um, uh, Keshev says, why do we take the right-handed batting as the reference for explaining different kinds of spin bowling, whichever way it turns? Uh, um, uh, So the reason we use right-handed is because if you look at the history of the game, back in the old days, I think it was 80% of players are right-handed. And if you play club cricket, it was even a higher percentage of right-handers. I think we're now at around 65% uh, right-handed to 35% left-handed at the professional level. If you play club cricket again, I would say that goes down um, a, a few, a lot more. I don't think in club cricket level you would ever have around 35% of people being left-handed uh, with the bat. Uh, so I think that right-handed just becomes the, the dominant thing. Um, and it, it doesn't make sense because, I mean, it was funny, I was having to explain to an American recently, they were interviewing me about something, and I was explaining about in-swing and out and I, and I sort of said, in-swing swings back into you. And then I went, oh, unless you're left-handed. Like, it's not the right way of doing it. But a lot of these terms, you know, off-spin, leg-spin, in-swing, out-swing, they are off-cutter, leg-cutter. They come from a time when there just weren't many left-handers around. So, yeah, I mean, we could change them um, now. It's It's weird. And also some people... You do notice – this is one thing I notice um, because of the the way that I listen to these sorts of things. But some people do flick between them. So, like, I'm listening on the radio one day, you know, and I hear someone say something along the lines of, you know, um, Ishant Sharma has bowled an outswinger to the left-hander. And I'll be like, What? So time I can't come bowling out outswinger to the left-hander and then I realized what they mean is he swung the ball away and not everyone does that and so you sometimes even hear in commentary two different commentators talking over each other i i, sorry, I, I remember that in club cricket once a, a batter getting the wrong information because the left-hander had said you know uh, uh, watch out for this guy's outswinger um was it outswingers yeah um, watch out for this guy's outswinger and so the right-hander went out first ball shouldered arm when the ball pitched on off stump and of course it came back and i think he leg <laughs> um, the complete opposite way of of what uh he, which way he thought it was swinging. Uh so yeah, look I but I just think those things are just uh a a oh, what's the best way of putting it um uh, a relic of this game being really old. Um you, we started talking about off spin legs being off cutter leg cutter probably 1870s and outswingers probably what 10 15 years after that. So, you know, well over 120 years for all of them. And I've never gone back and done the numbers on early test cricket, but it's really noticeable before 1980 even if a left hand, a left hand always get signaled out um, in a way that right handers don't. And I think that must be just because they are seen as far more rare, whereas now we don't see them as rare. And so many right handers now bat left handed that, it, you know, it changes everything. I will end it here. Just a huge shout out to all the 99.94 crew. I've been binge listening the West Indies and and Indian episodes recently. I I think those are the two teams. I I haven't got to South Africa yet. That'll be my next binge listen. But those are the two teams that, uh, you know, come out of the World Cup with the biggest existential crisis. Uh, Even if you're not a fan of the West Indies one, uh, the three-part series that Michelle and Santoki have put together is incredible. Uh, and then uh, Nikesh and, and Sarah, I've been going through the Indian T20 team. I think their last podcast might have been their ideal 11th um, for, for must be for the next World Cup, I assume. Uh, but, uh, I, I, you know, uh, that's a really good episode as well. So I do think um, uh, if if you haven't listened to these, these things, you're know, getting more and more each day. Uh, you know, Mitch Johnson, that podcast is getting really good. The more you listen to our podcasts, you know, the more podcasts that we can afford to, to bring on, um, and we're hoping to announce a new one very soon. Um, and we've got a couple in the works, but uh, but as it currently stands, that's where we're um, uh, that's the direction that we're currently going. So support your local ninety nine point nine four podcast and uh, and support all of them, I suppose. Anyway, thanks for coming on this chat, and I will see you again next week. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for West Indies, India, England, South Africa and Sri Lanka with the search term 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kinds of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week, and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42, with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Sainapiya, producing podcasts, Maida Akam, producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content.